Good morning, fellowship. Really fun to be back with you guys a week after Easter. When we were down there singing, I was looking up on the stage and I was remembering last week, this entire stage was over flooded with flowers. You all remember that. This week, the beauty of the flowers has been replaced by something a little more ordinary. The um, stalks of wheat or whatever crop that is. I'm not a farmer. And the connection I made to that was I said, you know, there's beauty in the everyday life as well. And then I remembered, we don't know which day Jesus rose from the grave. Every Sunday we gather is Resurrection Sunday. It's a reminder that Jesus is alive and he is in all of the ordinary parts of life like we just sang about. So praise God for that. Let me welcome you and just add my words to the welcome you've already gotten. I'm Rob. If I haven't met you yet, I would love to, whether you're new to fellowship or not, come down front sometime after a service and say hello. Or if we just haven't spoken in a while, I'd love to be able to do that. We are jumping back into our study through the book of Ruth. It's been a couple of weeks since we've been been off on that. So if you have your Bibles or your Ruth journal, go ahead and open those up. Ruth chapter three. I'm gonna give you a bit of a recap of the story of Ruth just to kind of get this back in our minds and connect some dots to the text that we're gonna be studying this morning. The story of Ruth takes place about 3,000 years ago. Put that in context, Jesus lived around 2,000 years ago. This is a whole thousand years before Jesus. And there was a Hebrew family in Bethlehem who left Bethlehem because of a famine, moved to a foreign country, the country of Moab, and their tragedy struck them. The patriarch of the family, Elimelech, died. There were two grown sons. They both married Moabite women, and then both of those sons died. And so what you were left with were three widows was a very dangerous situation for those three women in that culture, which we'll talk more about in just a moment. So Naomi decided to go back home to her homeland in Israel, and she encouraged her two daughters-in-law to stay back in Moab where their homes were because their life had a much better chance of having a happy ending if they were back with their families. One of them did the reasonable thing and went home. The other said, no, I'm going to do an unreasonable thing. I'm going to stay with you, Naomi. And so Ruth pledged her life to Naomi and to Naomi's God. And that's chapter one. Chapter two, they returned back home, Naomi's home, to find that God had brought food and it was the beginning of the barley harvest. And they meet a man named Boaz and Boaz shows kindness to Ruth in response to the kindness Ruth had shown to Naomi. And there begins to be a little bit of hope for these two widows. Now, why was their situation so precarious? Because in that day, if you were not part of a patriarch's family, you were in trouble. You had no provision and you had no protection. There were no government safety nets. There were no handouts. You were at the mercy of strangers and you were vulnerable to any man or or any other person or group of people that might decide to take advantage of you. We have a slide, a diagram we'll put back up on the screen if we could do that right now. That kind of reminds us, this is the situation of Israel. When you have a patriarchal society, the whole culture, the whole society revolves around this man here in the center. He's responsible for caring, for providing for the family. He's also responsible for enforcing the law. So if you were suddenly without a patriarch, you know, if you were a woman who was married and your husband died, or you were in this case, uh, Naomi or Ruth, you instantly found yourself not just suffering with the sadness and loss of that person or persons who had died, you found yourself outside of the safety nets of the culture. So one way to understand, so 
Patriarch is no longer alive. You have these two women that are very vulnerable outside of the system. One way to understand the entire plot of the book of Ruth is how will these two women get grafted back in to the safety and security of a patriarch's household. That is the story of Ruth. Now, in order to accomplish this, you notice since there's no more patriarch, it was gonna come down to someone who's a part of the clan. So, you know, the next concentric circle out was the clan. So would there be a redeemer from the clan of Elimelech who would graft back into the society and the culture and the provision of the protection of these two very vulnerable women. So that catches up with where we are. So we've covered chapter one, chapter two. This morning we start chapter three and I'm just gonna read straight through the text and then we'll go back and break it down. There's some very interesting things in our passage this morning. So let's turn our attention to God's word. I'm gonna read Ruth chapter three, verses one to nine. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore and anoint yourself. Put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she said, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a, a redeemer. This is the living word of God for us today. Amen. When Lloyd and I planned out new series, we cast lots for who will get the good passages. <laughs> I did not win this time. It's a strange passage. It's a little hard to connect with. Uh, there are some lines or some suggestions that may raise some eyebrows a little bit, but I've come to realize it is one of the most important passages in the book of Ruth. That's no exaggeration. This is a turning point in the whole text. And even more than that, there is a connection to us in this passage, which honestly I can't wait to get to because it's so important for us to see. We'll talk about that in the back half of the message this morning. But let me walk back through it. I'm, I'm not gonna reread every verse, but I wanna hit some details and highlights. I wanna start in verse one. So let's take a look together at verse one again. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? If you're marking up your text, which I would encourage you to do, circle the word rest. It's a key word here. In Ruth, it's the second time we've seen this word. The idea is safety, security. I mean, it's not just, you're not gonna have to work as hard. It's not just that kind of rest. It's you're in danger for your survival every day. Most of us in our modern society have no idea what it feels like to be fighting for survival. The next uh, a, a meal on the table. We just, most of us don't know what that is like. They knew in that culture. Remember, it was a famine that caused them to flee the promised land. Then death struck them. 
And these women were living day to day for their next meal. And so Naomi is praying for rest for her daughter-in-law. She says, isn't it my responsibility? You know, should I not seek this for you if it's there to be had? Now, what's interesting about this word rest is the previous time it appears in Ruth was also from the mouth of Naomi. This is when she was trying to say goodbye to, to her daughter-in-law or both daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, she says, but Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest. There it is again, same context. Each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. So this is a prayer of blessing in chapter one. She's sending them away. May you find rest. May you find peace and security and provision. Now, Ruth stays with her. Fast forward two chapters. Now they're back in Israel. And Naomi's saying, hey, shouldn't I try to help find rest? Same word for you, Ruth. I want you to think about this for a minute. The theme of the book is God's providence. That means God is in all the details. God's hand is in everything. God is using Naomi to answer her own prayer. You might think, well, how do we know this? Isn't maybe Naomi just taking matters into her own hands? You know, is she prayed for God showing them rest earlier in chapter one? Now she's gonna say, shouldn't I find you rest? I want you to think for a minute how the providence of God works in everyday life. And this is really important that we engage this. So, so just open up your brain to this for a minute. God does work miracles every day in various contexts and situations. He worked miracles in the time of the Bible. He works miracles today. But by and large, 99.9% .9 of the time, the way God works his hand, his will throughout the world is by using people, you and me, human beings. He put us on the planet to represent him, to bear his image, to do his will on the earth. And so it's interesting, if you think about God's in control of everything, so much of the way he operates and governs the world and his providence takes place is through human hands. You might think of it this way. The providence of God often flows through human hands. So I think it's beautiful that here Naomi Perhaps she remembers her prayer back in Moab. Perhaps she doesn't. But she is opening herself, offering herself to be a vessel of the prayer, answer the prayer that she prayed herself previously. Now we get to the next few verses, verses two to five. I'm not gonna reread them. We'll put them on the screen if you wanna reference them. But this is the plan that Naomi has. And it's unusual to say the least. The bottom line of Naomi's best idea, you know, her best plan is that Ruth would surprise Boaz in the middle of the night with what amounts to a marriage proposal. It's almost like the idea of like, we can't, we don't know that that guy's gonna, you know, see the light and, and you know, and, and ask you to marry him, which is what would normally happen. So we're gonna go and we're gonna, we meaning you, Ruth, are gonna go and you are gonna surprise him in the middle of the night and essentially let him know that you are interested in, marriage. Let me go ahead and say there are a lot of unanswered questions with this part of the story. There's a lot that we don't know. And I read a lot of commentaries about this and scholars speculate all kinds of things. The bottom line is we just don't know. This is the only case of this particular 
set of circumstances in the Bible. We don't find anything like this in other extra biblical literature, not exactly. All we can say is this, in Naomi's mind, it was clear to her that Boaz would interpret these actions as essentially an an invitation for a marriage relationship. Now, as we think about what's going on here and, you know, some of this sounds like, is this, you know, a a double entendre or there's what's going on? You don't need to go all that in your head because what actually happens is righteous. What actually happens is all above board. And, And I just want to imagine how difficult it is for us to know exactly what all this meant in the cultural context that took place 3,000 years ago, halfway across the world. And there's a lot of cultural bridge that we have to cross in order to think we can fully understand what was intended and, and what was actually going on in this cultural context. To get a sense for this, I want you to imagine uh, 3,000 years from now. Hard to imagine. You know, will the world even be around in the year 5022. Hard to imagine it will, but just imagine 3,000 years from now, someone living halfway across the world comes across a book written in the United States in the year 2022. They come across the book, they open it up. Of course, they'd have to translate it from English into whatever language they were speaking 3,000 years from now in that part of the world. And imagine them coming into a paragraph that reads like this. And his mother told him, cover yourself with scary clothes and ring the bell of a neighbor. When they open their door, threaten them with something mischievous unless they hand you a tasty dessert snack. My point is it's not surprising if there are things in this passage that we don't understand perfectly. There's a really big cultural gap and a time gap for us to cross. We know for sure in Naomi's mind This is a way of showing Boaz that Ruth would be interested in marrying him. And that's about as far as we can go. Any more than that is speculation. But here's one more thing that I think seems all but certain is that this was a huge risk. It struck me this week as I studied this that maybe the reason it seems so unusual even for other stories in the Bible is that it was unusual. I think it's very possible that this was not something that was done every day. And, and I think it makes sense because def, desperate times call for desperate measures. And this was a desperate measure. I want you to think about what a massive risk this was. Think about how risky this was for Ruth. She's a young woman. She's a foreigner. She does not belong to any patriarch or family to protect her. There there would probably be almost no consequence in this society if someone did wrong to her because there's no police force, there's no government force, there's no one to stick up for Ruth. She goes in the middle of the night, she lies down next to a man. Men, I don't think we easily understand this, but women do. This was scary, this was vulnerable. Ruth was entrusting herself to the righteousness of Boaz. More than that, she was entrusting herself to God. When she told Naomi earlier that she would stick with Naomi, she said, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And here is this giant step of faith, entrusting herself to the care, not of a patriarch, because she doesn't have one, but to the patriarch, the God of the Hebrews. So Naomi laid out this plan. And, you know, if I'm Ruth, I'm thinking, all right, if you say this is how it works around here, mother, 
But what does Ruth say? Verse five, all that you say, I will do. Again, she's just living out the pledge she made back in chapter one. She's gonna be faithful to Naomi. So these are the two places in the book of Ruth where Ruth takes a giant leap of faith. In both cases, she commits herself with her words before her actions. So there's chapter one, she pledges to stay with Naomi and then she lives that out. Now chapter three, she says, all that you say I will do, this very risky, scary uh, uh, um, scheme. And indeed, she does it. The result of this plan was either gonna be a secure future for herself and Naomi or it was gonna completely backfire. Ruth could potentially be in danger. Best case scenario, if it doesn't go right, is the women would be worse off than they were before. So the stakes are high. It's a very bold, risky plan. Evening comes. It's go time for Operation Threshing Floor. <laughs> let's talk about the threshing floor and let's talk about winnowing barley. What was that going on? Well, you know, we talked before about the gleaning. You know, you'd, you'd picture these stalks of grain. They'd be cut, they'd be gathered, they'd be put in a cart and they'd be hauled off to the threshing floor. The threshing floor was probably like one threshing floor for the whole town, the whole community. It'd be a large open flat space, hardened dirt. You know, maybe it was hewn out rock, but more than likely it was just a hardened dirt. And then they would, they would put the, the stalks down on the ground and they would walk on them, they would stomp on them. They probably had animals that would trod over them because the pressure of the feet and the weight would separate the grain from the rest, from the, the shaft and the rest of the stalks. So then what they would do is they would pick up the whole pile and they would throw it up into the air and the breeze would take away the shaft and then the good grain, the good, what you wanted to have and eat would drop down to the floor and they could gather that up and make piles of it. Now the workers would do this in the late afternoon and evening because that's likely when the breeze was best, when the wind was best. Then they would sleep with their crop because it was valuable. Seems a little strange for us, but in that day, it was like kind of like having just stacks of cash you know, laying out. Anybody could come on, take the food. Food was valuable. And so Boaz was likely not alone. He probably had his servants with him. He may not have been the only landowner that was threshing at the threshing floor that night. So there, there might've been, 10, 12, who knows, a dozen or so people, maybe more that would have been sleeping on this threshing floor. Did you notice that Naomi said, make sure you know the spot where he lies down? Why would she emphasize that? You don't want to wake the wrong man. Let's see how Ruth carries out the plan, verses six and seven. She went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly, that means quietly, and uncovered his feet and lay down. Why uncover his feet? Well, again, culturally, there are some things we don't know. There, there, there may have been some, some signaling or some messaging going on here with that gesture. But I just want you to think about this practically for a minute. You want to wake him up, but you don't want to do so in a way that will cause a scene. And, and likely earlier in the night, people would be more likely around Boaz to wake up as well. So what is she going to do? She uncovers his feet because at some point in time, his feet are going to get cold. You know, the temperature's dropping throughout the night as he's sleeping. At some point, he's going to be cold. He's going to realize, I need to cover up my feet. That's exactly what happens. You know, he wakes up, likely because of his cold feet. Now, verse 8 
happens to have my favorite line in the book of Ruth. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. (laughs) I just think the author had a smile on his face and I can picture these, you know, Hebrew grandfathers telling this story to their grandkids and all the grandkids giggle. It's just like, there was a woman, you know, it's like, lo and behold, what does he know? There's a woman laying at his feet. And then verse nine, we're gonna spend most of our time on this verse. It's wonderful. He said, who are you? Pause there. We'll get to Ruth's answer in just a minute, but let's just... Focus on Boaz's question. Who are you? He doesn't ask, what are you doing here? He says, who are you? It turns out that's exactly the right question. This would have been shocking. I mean, in our context, it'd be weird to wake up this way. But in that cultural context, probably even more so. So in order for Boaz to interpret what is being intended, he wants to know who this woman is. Is she someone from the town with a reputation? Is she someone he doesn't know or someone that he does know? What in the world is going on here? So there's so much writing in Ruth's answer to the question, who are you? Now Ruth's answer, her whole little speech here, tiny speech is remarkable. If you are marking up your Bible, I encourage you just, just, Put, the, put Ruth's quotation just in a big box or just you know, put a mark around it so it'll stand out to you as you go back and study this book. And again, I mentioned, I think I did, this is a turning point in the book of Ruth. It really is, and I'll explain why I think that is. But I just really want her sentence or her answer, her two sentences to stick out to you. Remember, Naomi's plan did not include a script. So Ruth has to improvise. Naomi just said, uncover his feet, lie down at his feet, and he'll tell you what to do. She did exactly as Naomi said. She uncovered his feet. She lied down at his feet. He wakes up and he asks her a question. Now she's got to answer. It's like, oh boy, what am I going to do? She has to improvise. She's off script. And the way she replies is really something. Notice her courage. Notice her boldness. Spread your wings over your servant. You are a redeemer. She actually doesn't do what Naomi suggests. Naomi says, he'll tell you what to do. Naomi does, or Ruth does not wait for Boaz to tell her what to do. She tells Boaz what to do. Her whole statement is remarkable. I actually want to break it down phrase by phrase. So let, let's do it this way. Let's just start with, with the first, you know, the direct answer to his question, who are you? She says, I am Ruth, your servant. Let's talk about that. Most other times in the book of Ruth, Ruth is identified as the Moabite woman or Naomi's daughter-in-law from Moab. It's a big deal that she was a foreigner. The, The narrator keeps reminding us over and over. It's almost like she doesn't have her own identity. She's the Moabite. She's Naomi's daughter-in-law from Moab. And here, Ruth does not answer his question that way. She says, I am Ruth. She says her name. And then she goes on to say, your servant She's describing her relationship with Boaz. She probably has in mind the fact that she's been gleaning in his field now for quite some time. But even more than that, it's a title of humility, isn't it? And in our context too. I'm at your service. I'm your servant. So here's what Ruth is doing. She's describing herself as Boaz's servant, which matches the posture where she is physically at his feet. 
there's significance to that. She's laying down at his feet. She says, I'm Ruth, your servant. So what's going on? Well, first she's got boldness. I'm Ruth, this is who I am. I'm here for a purpose, but also humility. I'm your servant. I'm demonstrating that by the fact that I'm laying here at your feet. Now, it's about to get really good, about really amazing. This next phrase, spread your wings over your servant. Oh my goodness, there's so much here. The word wings, if you're marking up your text, circle that word. It's another key word in the book of Ruth. The word wings has three levels to it. At the first level, it was actually the word for a man's cloak. The significance of this is that the cloak in that time was your most important possession, literally. It was the garment that you kept to cover yourself and protect yourself during the day. It was your blanket at night. And it was called this, this Hebrew word that could be translated wings. So literally, what Ruth is saying is, you're not the only one cold. It's cold. Cover me with your blanket. Cover me with your cloak, okay? That's level one. But level two, it was known in that day when a man had an interest in marrying a woman, he would take his cloak off and he would place it on him. And it was a symbol that he wanted to marry this woman. And this was attested in lots of places in all kinds of ancient Near Eastern literature. So we know that this was the symbolic meaning that Ruth was saying, take your cloak and put it on me. In other words, marry me, take me into your family. But there's a third layer as well. And it's why I love the fact that the English translate, translate it, didn't translate it cloak or blanket, they translate it wings, because it also means the wings of a bird and was used metaphorically for when a bird would, would cover its chicks in its nests. It was used metaphorically to say, I'm going to care for you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to put my wings over you. And in fact, it's the same word that Boaz himself used about Ruth the first day they met. Look at chapter 2, verse 12. This is Boaz talking to Ruth. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Same word. Those of you who are married, do you remember the first time you met your spouse? I bet you do. Ruth remembered the first time she met Boaz. Boaz remembered this conversation. Ruth is taking him back. In essence, she's saying, do you, do, you, do you remember you prayed a blessing over me that the God of Israel would put me under his wings? Boaz, spread your wings over me. Be God's answer to your own prayer. The providence of God often flows through human hands. So you have this amazing multiple meanings going on when she says this sentence. But if there was any question of what she was really intending, she answers it with this last phrase. For you are a redeemer. 
if there was any question in Ruth's mind over whether what was going to happen that night was going to be righteous or not, she is calling righteousness out of Boaz. The whole law of the Redeemer was from God's law. And this was in a time when people did not obey God's law by and large. They did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. She is calling Boaz up to righteousness. In fact, this is the first time anyone has directly called Boaz Redeemer to his face. Ruth is calling him up to that title. She is giving Boaz an identity to live into. I love the fact that the conversation started with Boaz asking Ruth, who are you? And it ends with Ruth saying, this is who you are, Boaz. You are a redeemer. So redeem me. In essence, what Ruth was communicating to Boaz was, was I'm Ruth, your servant. You, you know my story. You know who I am. We've had this conversation. I have no other hope and future in Israel except for you to spread your wings over me. So do it. Bring me into your family because that is who you are. You are a redeemer. Now you see why Ruth's little speech is so amazing. Now you see why it's a turning point in the book. Everything that happened in all the other chapters leading up to this moment was just sort of prelude for what Ruth was going to do, what she was going to call Boaz to in this very moment. And we got to wait till next week to see what he actually decides to do. Haha, <laughs> ha, we all know. So that's our text. And I want to spend the rest of our time just several more minutes talking about how in the world do we connect this to our own lives. And I hope your brain is already starting to kind of to, to run on this Redeemer theme because that's what I want to talk about. Many writers have commented how Boaz is a foreshadow of Jesus Christ. And I think that's true. When you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, both Old and New Testaments, what you start to see is a picture of redemption emerge. And maybe nowhere is it more clear and literal and visceral for us than in the book of Ruth. We see what redemption is, we see why redemption is needed, and we see a picture of a Redeemer. And here's what I want you to see this morning. Ruth's approach to Boaz in our text, in, in right here in chapter three, parallels the experience of every true Christian. The way we must approach Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Consider the way Ruth came to Boaz. She risked everything for this one hope of rescue. She lied down at his feet. She identified herself as his servant. She brought nothing but her own need. But when she spoke to him, she was bold and confident, but not confident in who she was. She was confident in who he was. She threw herself on the righteousness of this man and called on his identity as a redeemer. This is the posture of every truly redeemed person. We bring nothing to the equation of our redemption. The only thing we have to bring is need. Our spiritual poverty drives us to the threshing floor. Our desperate situation 
leads us to take a risk of faith. Jesus, unlike Boaz, does not need to be called up to his identity. He loves redeeming people. It is who he is. But there is a catch. If you can call it that. And that is you cannot bring anything to Jesus but your own need. I was thinking and praying for an illustration this week that would represent the posture of anyone who would come and ask for salvation, ask for rescue, ask for redemption. Here it is. It's just a cup, an empty cup. This is a picture of someone whose life is ready to be redeemed by Jesus. This cup is empty and it knows it. Jesus talked about emptiness and need and, and, and humility all the time. It, he said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. He told stories of lost people and lost things being found again. When he, he saw two men praying, one was a tax collector who was tearfully repentant, the other was Pharisee who was prideful and haughty. He affirmed the tax collector rather than the Pharisee. He pointed out the poor widow with the tiny offering. He shooed away hypocritical religious leaders who wanted to stone the woman who had committed adultery. He celebrated the rebellious son turning home dirty and penniless. And all these were object lessons and illustrations of Jesus that exemplified his incredible statement in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, come to me if you're thirsty. Come to me if you're tired, if you're weary, if you're heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Safety, security, provision. When he was riding into Jerusalem and he was weeping over Jerusalem, he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather your children under my wings. When you come to Jesus, you have nothing to offer him except your own need. This is the shape of the poor in spirit. Do not despise it. I think we have a hard time with neediness. It's okay for us sometimes to see neediness in other people. We will often give or we will serve, but we don't like to see neediness in ourselves. We need to change. Because if you don't see in yourself emptiness, neediness, desperation, you will never lie down at the feet of Jesus. You might sing songs about him. You might do some things for him, but you will never prostrate yourself at his feet and say, rescue me for you are a redeemer. 
By the way, this is where desperate circumstances turn out to be the best possible thing that often could ever happen to you. Deep pain, tremendous loss. Even, I believe, falling on your face in the muck of sin, God will use all of those things to bring you to the glorious emptiness of the poor in spirit. So don't let pride or fear or your own sense of sufficiency keep you from laying down at the feet of Jesus and saying, spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. Our invitation to life this morning is exactly this. I wanna give you an opportunity to make Ruth's statement your own. Put your name where she put hers. Identify yourself before your redeemer. It's me, it's Rob, your servant. Spread your wings over me. You are a redeemer. Some of you have never prayed a prayer like this in your life. And there may be a couple reasons for that. Maybe you just never saw it this way. Maybe you just, you, you didn't see Jesus this way as someone that was just so open-hearted and open-handed to anyone with need. Maybe you never saw yourself this way as someone who had nothing to offer. This morning is an opportunity for you to pray this prayer. And you can just literally do this and let this be your prayer of faith for salvation. Identify yourself. Name yourself as a servant of Jesus. Ask him to protect you, to provide for you, to care for you, to give you life, to give you resurrection. Spread your wings over me, you say. You are a redeemer. You're reminding him of his identity. He loves to redeem people. Take him up on it. Many of us, months ago, weeks ago, maybe years ago, prayed a prayer similar to this. But we've lost touch with our need. Guys, there's no other posture at which we come to Jesus except empty. And so for you this morning, the empty cup represents an invitation to life as well. Maybe you've been coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I need a little bit of you. You know, I've got most of what I need. I'm halfway full. I'm three quarters full. Just, just give me a little bit of help here. This morning is a chance for you to say, no, 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 I'm empty. I've got nothing. I'm spiritually bankrupt. There's no amount of perfume I can put on me to cover the stench of my own sin. Here I am before you again, Jesus. Spread your wings over me. He is a redeemer. I want to invite you to take out the communion elements you picked up when you came in the door. And if, if you missed them, please get up. Don't be embarrassed. Don't be shy. Just get up and go out into the hallway out there and just grab some communion elements. We want you to be able to participate in this with us. I'll give a, a few minutes here. I want to set this up so you've got time to get those if you want. Peel back that first layer. Just hold the bread in your hands. Don't eat it yet. Just hold the bread in your hands. I want to just talk to us for a moment or two about what this represents. You know, these communion elements, we believe they represent, we believe they symbolize, they, they point to something, but what they point to is real. 
It is true. And one of the things I love about communion and love about the fact that we do this every week here is oftentimes we need something tangible to remind us. We need something we can feel. In this case, you can feel it. You can taste it. You will in a few minutes chew it up and swallow it. It will go. It will become a part of you in a sense. We need the tangibleness to remind us of the realness of our salvation. Anyone who at any point in time has prayed a prayer similar to what we had on the screen, maybe today was your first day. Maybe you will right now as you're taking communion, pray this prayer and mean it. Maybe it was many, many years ago. But anyone who has ever come to Jesus and said, I am desperate, I need you to rescue me. This table is for you. And so we take this bread and we remember that Jesus says, this bread is my body broken for you. This, men and women, is our provision. This was the plan of the Redeemer for us so that we may have life in him. And we eat this in remembrance of Jesus. Let's peel back the foil of the cup and Hold the cup in your hand for a moment before we'll drink it together. Redemption always requires a price. We'll see as the story unfolds with Boaz the price he has to pay to redeem Ruth and Naomi. Jesus gave everything. This cup represents the blood that he freely and willingly gave. The book of Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. You and I are what was set before Jesus. We are his joy. Let's drink the cup. Our Father, we thank you for the redemption that is ours in Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is the Redeemer. And now, Father, we count it a privilege to be able to lay at his feet and worship him. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.